From farming to water quality, Iowa's Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship impacts both rural and urban Iowans. The two candidates for Secretary of Agriculture are our guests on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Iowa PBS is supported in part by Wells Fargo. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond, celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS. This is the Friday, September 30th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Henderson. On this edition of Iowa Press, our guests are the candidates for Iowa Secretary of Agriculture. Republican Mike Nagg grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa. He was working in the Department of Agriculture in 2018 when Governor Reynolds appointed him to the post. He was elected to a full term in 2018. Democrat John Norwood is a small business owner. He is currently a Polk County Soil and Water Commissioner. Gentlemen, welcome to Iowa Press. Thank you. Nice to be here, Kay. Also joining the conversation, Brianne Fonnensteel of the Des Moines Register and Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio. I want to ask both of you, there's about 80,000 farmers in the state of Iowa. Uh, everybody that shows up on Election Day is going to be voting for Secretary of Agriculture. Mike Nagg, I'll start with you. What's your appeal to the rest of the voters uh, in the voting block when you look at people voting across the state for Secretary of Agriculture. Well, you bet. And thanks again to Iowa Press for organizing these across the, up and down the ticket. It's a, it's a good public service, so thank you for hosting us today. Uh, you know, yes, this is. This is a role that is voted on by uh, every, every voter in the, in the state of Iowa, and so the Secretary of Ag certainly plays a role. Uh, for uh, for every Iowan in in terms of things like uh, consumer protection and and uh, food safety functions that we have at the Department of Ag in our work around land stewardship uh, every Iowan benefits from uh, our work there and so uh, this is not just a role that's for the farm community but it is one that does reach uh, to uh, to every Iowan and of course the other core element of our agriculture is that Iowa's economy is driven by ag when we have a strong agriculture every Iowan benefits from that. So I think that's the other compelling reason uh, that folks should pay attention to this race and the vision of the candidates running. John Norwood, what's your appeal yeah. to... Well, I, I like to tell voters that this is the Secretary of Food, Land, and Water. This position is incredibly important. As Mike described, the, the mission of the department is broad. It includes promotion of agriculture. It includes protection of our land and water. It includes looking at agriculture as an economic development activity, which is important for rural Iowa in particular. It includes uh, protection of public health and animal welfare. And so if you eat or you drink, you should be interested in this position. 
three companies have proposed building pipelines across the state of Iowa to sequester carbon from ethanol companies to help reduce the climate impact of those companies. They've been controversial. Gentlemen, what do you believe? Is, is this a viable concept for the state of Iowa? John Norwood, we'll start with you. Yeah, my, my uh, philosophy with uh, the carbon pipelines is that uh, they do not qualify for eminent domain. Um, they're not a public use, at least in my uh, understanding of, of their concept. I think there should be three standards if we build these pipelines. The first standard should be that it's voluntary. The second standard should be that it's fair. Uh, by fair, I think uh, I would uh, borrow from the Mid-American Energy Playbook for wind towers, uh, wind power, and those are annual payments. Annual payments to landowners would be part of the process. Annual payments to counties. Why do can't counties get an annual payment? Well, because they're bearing a new risk. The pipeline is carrying a dangerous product, and so they get to upgrade their EMS systems. I think also the idea of, um, and fairness ought to include, I think, um, a payment to the state uh, to improve water quality, uh, annual payment. They also need to be done uh, safely. These pipelines are carrying a liquid product. If it gets out, it's heavier than air. We have an example from Mississippi. Uh, and, uh, and so I think the pipeline technology would need to be state-of-the-art and routed away from schools and other sensitive areas. Mike Nick. Well, this certainly is a hot topic, and it's something I hear about uh, as I travel the state. I, I do hear from passionate people on both sides of this. You've got, you've got folks that, uh, that aren't interested in, in having their land accessed for this project. Uh, you've got folks that, uh, that don't even like support the concept of ethanol. You know, Sierra Club uh, you know, campaigning heavily against because of the uh, potential upside for ethanol. And then I hear from folks, uh, certainly the ethanol industry, renewable fuels and uh, uh, industry and, and producers who feel that they will benefit from the extension of and, and the expansion of ethanol in the state of Iowa, that they do uh, are interested in this. So I think there are some compelling reasons to be to be talking about this. Of course, what this does come down to is this, how do these things get built? Uh, can they be built? And really what's happening right now, the process that's playing out across the state of Iowa is those developers are approaching landowners, making offers. Landowners have every right and uh, to, be, to be fully and fairly compensated for the use of their land. So I think we're in a process that needs to play out, but I do think that there's a, a compelling upside for, uh, for the ethanol industry if these projects do go forward. So do you believe they should go forward, having heard from all of these stakeholders? Well, again, I, 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 at this point, we're in a process. It's landowners are being a, approached. Uh, you know, can, can a developer satisfy their questions? Can they off, make them an offer that they, uh, that they would accept? I think that's where this really needs to play out. And ultimately, if, uh, if eminent domain is going to be considered for use in these projects, it needs to be as a tool of last resort. It needs to come... Uh, when and if there has been uh, significant voluntary agreements that are in place across the state. Well, how would you define significant? The legislature in the House of Representatives proposed a standard. Mm. They have to reach a threshold of, of, of a certain percent of voluntary easements before they could seek it. Is that an... an something that you would support? Well, I think it, so so I think the utilities board and certainly the legislature may very well have an opinion about what that number should be. I, I think it should be significant. I'm reluctant to say a specific number, but I think there will be opinions on that, you know, as we play as this process plays out. John Norwood, do you see <laughs> these carbon capture pipelines as being part of a, a solution to carbon or to uh, climate change? I think there's a much better solution. I, I think uh, we ought to be focusing on 
rather than trying to use the carbon pipelines to, to uh, prop up a, a, a declining market, which is our automobiles as they shift to electric vehicles, we ought to be looking at the hard to electrify markets, and there's four of them. It's airplanes, it's uh, locomotives, it's um, marine boats, and long-haul trucks. Together, those are $70 billion. If we want to do something, I think, that would be helpful to the ethanol industry, it ought to be looking at an RFS3 aimed at those markets, those locomotives that we see uh, hauling all this ethanol and biodiesel, they don't even burn. Those locomotives do not burn biofuels. So that's a role that government can play, create new markets for ethanol which makes sense, not try to prop up markets that are falling, catching you, a falling knife. You mentioned RFS3, yes. just in layman's terms, what do you mean? Yeah, renewable, re- renewable fuel, fuel standards 1 and 2 were aimed at automobiles. Okay. Renewable fuel standards 3 would be aimed at these hard-to-electrify markets. Okay. These are the ones where biofuels make sense because the best ton of, car- the best ton of carbon stored is not carbon that we take from a pipeline and put it back into the ground. It's the ton of carbon we never take out of the ground in the first place. Well, let's talk about the ethanol industry a little bit more. The ethanol industry is facing a perilous future in part because of the shift toward electric vehicles. You know, this this project is intended to help support its long-term growth. So what happens if, if these pipelines are not approved? What is the future of ethanol in Iowa, Mike Nag? Well, I, first of all, I'm not willing to let the ethanol industry uh, go by the wayside. You're talking about an industry that processes 50% of the corn that we grow in the state of Iowa is first processed at an ethanol plant. I mean, that's that's not something that we easily replace. And so this is something that has been a significant driver for our ag economy now for a couple of decades. It absolutely can and should have a a healthy, long future and should be part of this, our our nation's energy portfolio broadly. Uh, To over-rely on any one component is dangerous, especially if that's electric vehicles where battery parts are coming from places like China. That's that's a short-sighted strategy. I think that what we need to, again, look holistically, look at domestic energy production, certainly renewable energy production. So uh, I do think that uh, the, the ethanol industry is needs to be looking at how do they lower the carbon intensity of that fuel. And there are various ways to do that. Pipelines can accomplish that. We should look at uh, higher inclusion rates of ethanol and biodiesel, like we've done in the state of Iowa, pushing to E15 and beyond. Those are the ways I think that we can continue to extend this uh, this this uh, uh, industry, but also again, in light of increased fuel costs and energy costs over the last couple of years, doesn't domestic renewable energy uh, production make more sense today than ever before? A gallon of ethanol pumped benefits Iowans, and that's what we need to be focused John on. John Norwood, how do you support a shift to electric vehicles without leaving behind Iowa's yeah. ethanol industry? Well, I just described, I think, the primary strategy we need to deploy, which is shifting our uh, biofuels, and I, I don't think we want to forget uh, renewable uh, diesel and bio biodiesel. That's an incredibly important part of the fuel supply, uh, and we have a great example in Renewable Energy Group, a leading bio, biofuel producer here in uh, Ames, Iowa, just bought by Chevron. But it's the 70 billion gallons of, the, of those difficult to electrify markets is where we ought to be focused uh, for for the ethanol in the biofuels industry. And the other thing we need to think about is what is in short supply. What is in short supply is biogas, natural gas. We've doubled in prices. And so those ethanol plants can be begin to be reimagined to produce biogas, not ethanol. And so that's how we begin to shift and utilize the existing infrastructure in a way that is moving for the direction of the country because it's the energy background backbone. It's going to be the electrical grid and the natural gas grid. Those are going to be the energy backbones, and Iowa can play a role 
Iowa, Iowa, ethanol Iowa corn growers can play a role in supporting that future. Let's talk about a couple of other renewable energy sources, solar <coughs> mm -hmm. and wind. There's been controversy brewing in some counties around yeah. the state whereby they're passing ordinances yeah. which have sort of canceled out wind farm right. production. Uh, Mr. Norwood, do you think that there should be statewide restrictions on where wind turbines and solar panels and solar arrays mm. may be yeah. located? I, I think in the diversity in the 98 counties I've been to so far in the 30,000 miles driving around Iowa and talking to lots of Iowans, I think there is a lot of diversity in our state. And so I do believe in the importance of local control. Uh, and I think uh, wind power, and, which currently fits into that model, and I think also solar. Uh, can fit into that model. I think one of the misconceptions about solar as it's being presented is it's a, it has to be an either-or choice. I think we have to think about the use of solar, just like wind power, where it's compatible and supports agriculture. And there's some good examples of that. I don't think we ought to be using solar on a large-scale basis to displace agricultural lands. And so I think these are important uh, decisions that need to be made. But I think uh, County supervisors and others are often in the best position to understand what is they're elected to under, represent the, the voters in those particular counties. The state has a minimum standard, I think, that they, they have a responsibility for setting. Mike Negg, there was a bill introduced in the Iowa Senate mm -hmm. this past year that didn't go anywhere, but would have prevented solar arrays from being located on land that is rated as good for growing corn. Is that something you would support? Do you think there should be statewide standards, or do you appreciate and support county local control. Yeah, I think I think maintaining a measure of uh, local control is is important in this because again you're talking the, something that's more like development and that there are uh, considerations that really need to be looked at locally there. You know, in terms of this concept of where to cite those things. You know, I think we all can understand. I hear from a lot of folks that nobody wants to see uh, that great piece of neighboring farm, farm ground to be put under solar panels, and, and yet there is an element of uh, property rights, too, associated with somebody who owns that piece of ground, and can they be satisfied, again, that that's a project they're interested in? So, again, some balance there is important, but I think generally that whether it comes in the form of a, of a, a county ordinance or whether it's simply policies that the developers implement themselves, that they try to target a ground that is not as productive, that, that they can fit these uh, structures into places that, that are you know, more suited or less suited to farming maybe and more suited to that kind of development. So I think there's, there's a various ways to get there, but generally I'm, I'm supportive of the concept of let's target acres that aren't our most productive farm acres. John Norwood, at the opening of this conversation, you said the Secretary of Agriculture is relevant to anybody who drinks the water. Yes. We're coming up on almost 10 years since right. the Iowa Nutrient Reduction yes. Strategy was introduced. Right. Uh, for those that are not familiar yeah. with it, this is a list of different things that farmers can do, conservation practices on right. their land to keep nitrates from going downstream. Yeah. As we're looking at 10 years yeah. and you're thinking of this post uh, yeah. here in Iowa, should there be regulation to have farmers put these kinds of practices yeah. on their land. The way I'm, the I'm looking at this, and as a soil and water commissioner, I introduced a systematic approach to building the water quality infrastructure that my opponent is now adopting and uh, expanding across the state. It's called Batch and Build. The current nutrient reduction strategy isn't working. Uh, the one-off, doing things one at a time, can't scale to the 23 million acres. So we need to be thinking less about is it voluntary or regulatory. The framework ought to be not doing things one at a time. They're doing them systematically. 
the nutrient reduction strategy numbers are up over 30% since uh, this strategy was adopted. It's not a strategy, in fact, as you suggested. It's just a menu of choices. And so we need to be a, begin to think about systematically how do we scale up both the water quality practices, that means drainage districts, working with drainage districts, getting them to uh, not just drain water, but to manage water, manage water fil filtration, manage water for aquifer recharge, manage water for flooding. We have to scale up soil health. That's another important aspect that we, frankly, we don't have a strategy for. And I can say that because I'm a soil water commissioner. I see this firsthand. So these are things we need to be doing systematically, I think. And then we have to align federal policy the financial incentives to support and drive the adoption. 60% of our ag ground is absentee owned. And so when we don't involve the landowner in the conversation, we can't scale these things systematically. Mike Neg, how do you see uh, things going with the nutrient reduction strategy? And uh, are there things that can get more people involved uh, to, to put these kinds of practices without regulation. Well, I view it very differently than my opponent. I can tell you tell you that much. I mean, you know, here here we sit today in the state of Iowa, uh, and I can confidently say there's never been more awareness, more work, more partnerships, and more resources being focused, and more actual conservation work getting done on the ground today than at any time in our history. And we've set records in the last couple of years in, in the face of some incredible uncertainty and historic disruptions to all of our lives, especially the agriculture supply chain. So I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of the work that's been done. But I've said many times, we're not satisfied with where we are. We know that there's a significant amount of work that yet needs to be done. So we, uh, the nutrient reduction strategy is a strategy. It, it lays out practices and approaches to improving water quality. We, we, set, uh, we, we have led on this issue in, in this country. Other states have used our strategy as a model. We did a first-of-its-kind science assessment at Iowa State University that said, if you implement this practice, there's a corresponding improvement in water quality. So what we set out to do is to demonstrate and then implement those practices. And here's another point that I want to make sure we get across. This is not just a farm nutrient reduction strategy. The, nutrient, the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy includes urban and rural point and non-point sources. We didn't just create a, a town strategy and, a, and a, a rural strategy. It is all together. We are working across the entire landscape uh, to see changes in our water quality. We have work to do. There's no doubt about it. But we are, we've changed the complete trajectory of where we've what we've done on water quality in this state, and there's the we're, we're, it's it's bearing fruit now. But the the, the progress report shows that nitrogen True. Uh, has has increased. True, we've got we have nearly accomplished our goals on phosphorus and nitrogen. We have a lot of work to do. Remember that uh, historically, in when it comes to conservation, we've focused on preventing soil erosion. Phosphorus tends to move with soil. That's why we are seeing the improvements that we've seen. Uh, historically, we've wanted to move water off of the landscape as fast as we can. In fact, that's the sole purpose of a drainage district, is to remove water from the landscape because of to make that land more productive. We're talking about uh, needing to implement new practices to address that issue. So that's where cover crops come into play, nutrient management in the field, and then edge of field practices like wetlands and bioreactors and saturated buffers. And by the way, I think there's a few folks that would dispute that, that you are the sole uh, author or architect of the batch and build concept. It's been talked about for years. Uh, what was lacking was funding to do it. And when we went and fought for long-term dedicated funding for water quality efforts in the state of Iowa, when we got those dollars, we set out to implement that, that approach. 
And now we're seeing that play out across the state, too, uh, in, in many counties. You talk about phosphorus, though. Is that based on water quality data? Yeah, right. If, 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 you are, if you are preventing soil from moving, you are typically holding back phosphorus as well. So, so what we need to focus on is that night movement of water, nitrates, uh, uh, nitrate-treating wetlands, bioreactor-saturated buffers, holding more of that water on the landscape, slowing it down and denitrifying it. Those are the things that we need to focus on. I'd like to respond to that because the metrics do not align with what this uh, Mike is talking about. The water quality uh, metrics, the, the um, nitrogen uh, uh, loading is going up 30%, 100% over a longer period of time. We're losing $3 billion worth of soil each year, 140 million tons. That's soil moving. We have Des Moines Water Works, one of our principal water uh, suppliers for 500,000 people, and they have to shut off the water supply. Uh, source water supply for Sailorville Lake because of nutrient blooms that are based on phosphorus and nitrogen loading. So it doesn't square up with what the secretary is saying. Now, it may be true we've done more than we've ever done, but we're walking and the escalator is taking us backwards. And climate change is going to make this worse. The current approach is not an approach. It's not a strategy. It, does, it doesn't have the appropriate resources. We're talking about a trillion dollars, one of the richest growing regions in the world with a trillion dollars worth of assets. The land assets are 350 billion alone, over a hundred billion dollars worth of drainage infrastructure. And we're not going to solve that with 10 or 20 million dollars uh, running around, you know, celebrating happy projects. This mm. has to be a systematic approach. And there wasn't a systematic approach until I introduced it. So I would disagree with your, your comments. There are thousands of people who work on these issues and are actually putting practices on the ground in the state of Iowa. I do not consider that a failure in any form or fashion. We have changed the trajectory. We are focused on accelerating and scaling up the adoption of practices across the state. That's the right approach. We haven't much time left. Let's move on to another topic. Fertilizer prices are through the roof. Mm. I'm old enough to remember when the state of Iowa spent a boatload of money helping build a fertilizer plant in southeast Iowa. Why is this happening, Mike Neg? Well, it is a global, it's a global commodity. I think that's the first thing that you have to recognize is that, yes, we may have production facilities in the state of Iowa, but it's a globally traded commodity. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the, there's two things that you look at with the fertilizer uh, issue is one is what does it cost and the second is can you get it? And so we've seen a significant increase in the, what it's cost our farmers, which of course is largely driven by energy prices. Uh, one of the key ingredients to fertilizer is going to be is energy, and energy cost uh, is a significant contributor to that. Of course, we've also seen a disruption in supply chains you know, in places like Russia and China as well. So all that has contributed to uh, a disruption for our farmers in driving up costs. We do need to look at more domestic production and uh, you know anything that anything that's produced here and stays here benefits the uh, the American farmer. That's for sure. John Norbert. My response is the reason why anhydrous is, is doubled in, uh, the the feed ingredient to anhydrous is natural gas, which is doubled in price. So synthetic fertilizers, the prices has gone up. But the solution is that we want to decrease our dependence on synthetic fertilizers. We want to use more bio-based fertilizers, and with soil health, we don't we can decrease our dependency on synthetic fertilizers. So really that is the long-term solution. Guess what? Healthy soil means better water, water quality. It means less flooding. So we have to, we have to begin to address the causes of, uh, of, of, of these um, 
fertilizer use that we're, we have to use it more efficiently. And again, getting down to the wire here, but we wanted to ask about competition in the agriculture industry. The Biden administration has promised to try and increase this, particularly in the meat processing industry. Yeah. What's the right approach and how can the state partner with, with the administration, Mike Nag? On meat processing specifically? Well, let's, let's take generally across agriculture. And I think it's, it's always important to look at you know, anti-competitive behaviors and to investigate that and to understand what's happening and then enforce those laws. And those are largely federal issues. And so we should never be afraid to do those things. In terms of meat processing, increasing processing competition and capacity is definitely a good thing. I think the administration's done some, some good things. USDA rolls, has rolled out some significant support for meat processing. I, I think that's good. We've done that at the state level with uh, uh, increased support for small meat lockers. And uh, I think also things like Senator Grassley's bill to increase competition in terms of how cattle are purchased also is uh, one of those key components. Regional and local processing is hugely important. And the dollars in the, in the uh, state budget don't reflect the importance of this issue. Uh, it's a $250 million budget, more or less, $50 million from Iowa. It's been level-funded or defunded over uh, the last few years, and it's not reflective of protecting one of the most important growing regions in, in the country. Seventy of our counties are in rural decline. Part of that is because of the scaling of the system. And you just have to go talk to some farmers, farm operators, for the lack of access. Well, we are completed with this discussion. We have a lot of other ag-related issues to talk about, but gentlemen, thank you for sharing your views on the ones that we did talk thank about. Thank you. Thank you. A brief programming note before we go. On Thursday, our Iowa Press Debate Series continues with the two candidates running to represent Iowans in the United States Senate. Republican incumbent Senator Chuck Grassley and Democrat Mike Franken will debate the issues live, on air, and online at 7 p.m. We hope you'll join us. Then there'll be another Iowa Press next Friday at 7.30 on the broadcast airwaves and at noon on Sunday, or you can find us anytime at iowapbs.org. On behalf of the hardworking crew here at Iowa PBS, thanks for watching. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Iowa PBS is supported in part by Wells Fargo. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.